Tenakoto, Tenakoto, Tenakoto Katoa. Hello and welcome to Critical to Your Success. Thanks for joining me. I am your host, Rachel Park. I'm a critical care nurse, academic and researcher from Auckland, New Zealand. And this is the podcast where I talk to critical care nurses, allied healthcare team members and other academics about what has been critical to their success. I do hope you've been enjoying the episode so far. How are things for you? I can't believe that we are now into February 2021. What will happen this year, do you think? What hopes, dreams, expectations do you have, particularly after last year's madness and adjustments? I hope you are all keeping well. This is episode number 23, recorded January 2021, and today I talk with Iris Fontanella. Iris is a registered psychologist specialling in health psychology with over 20 years experience in the healthcare sector. She is one of the first New Zealand trained health psychologists and currently works as a clinical lead psychology at a district health board here in Auckland, New Zealand. Iris also provides clinical supervision and is an honorary lecturer at the University of Auckland where she teaches health psychology interns postgraduate nursing and medical students. She also has provided expert opinions in emotional resilience, stress management, dealing with anxiety, preventing burnout, work-life balance and wellness. In this episode we talk about challenges in a complex healthcare setting and an holistic view of support, how people just want someone who understands how difficult and tough it is or was for them, the importance of working within the multidisciplinary team and singing from the same song sheet when dealing with patients, vulnerability and loss of autonomy and control that patients experience, the importance of remembering the person in front of you and how we can thrive, flourish, achieve and recalibrate in order to prioritise self-care and maintain resilience. In this episode, you'll hear Iris and I use a number of words that you may not be familiar with, as they are te reo Māori, Māori language or language of our Indigenous population here in Aotearoa, New Zealand. Loosely translated, these include words such as whānau, or family, mahi, work, and hōora, which is health and well-being. Iris also mentioned some support lines and websites that might be useful, and I have put these in the written introduction to this episode. Please, if you think you need help, reach out to one near you. These are New Zealand links, but there will be similar support near you, and this is a tough time for us all. So, grab a cuppa, sit back, and have a listen to the interview with Iris. So Iris, thank you so much for coming to talk to me today. Um, It's a real pleasure and we've known each other for a few years um, through our work in the ICU together but um, really great to have you on the podcast today and we'll talk a little bit um, about some of the strategies perhaps that we can employ to look after ourselves and and some of the challenges that we find through working in the ICU. So thank you. Thank you for having me Rachel. Yes, um, it's a pleasure to be invited, so I'm very excited to just talk about, I think, as you've said, some of the challenges that we face as a team working in a specific area of um, medicine and the hospital system. Um, yeah, I'm very, very happy to be 
you know, invited. So. Well, that's great. Yeah. <laughs> nice to be able to sit down in the afternoon and just have a chat. <laughs> Over a cuppa. Over a cuppa. <laughs> so thank you. So tell us a little bit about yourself and your background and um, how you got into this job. Yeah, so um, I clearly don't originally come from New Zealand, <laughs> but I'm thankful for my parents. So um, we moved here from the United States when I was quite young. I, I trained here. New Zealand is definitely home. You know, I we, we visit family overseas, but this is definitely home for me. And um, how did I come to, to this role? I, well, I trained um, at the University of Auckland. My, my entire um, psychology training has been across the road, so to speak. Yeah. <laughs> so just, just across real, the road. I realized. <laughs> um, and the Department of Psychological Medicine. Um, and so I've been very fortunate, really, to work in an organization where we both work, where um, health psychologists are, you know, um, employed and they see some value to what we can Mm -hmm. provide with our patients and their photo, but also as I've progressed in my career, having worked for for a number of years now, is working with clinicians, Mm -hmm. you know, um, not just the patients whom we serve, but actually working alongside wonderful colleagues like yourself, but also other members of the medical and allied health teams and how we can actually support each other through, you know, the challenges that we face in a very complex health system. Mm. Um, And so I have found it a huge privilege to just learn from my colleagues because they are the experts in, you know, in these very complex areas of work and how my expertise, I suppose, can contribute to ameliorating some of the, you know, the distress, mm-hmm. some of the, what I say, the psychosocial factors that actually might make their roles or their mahi a lot more challenging, mm-hmm. challenging than it should be. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it's a hard job, isn't it? I think, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. And I, you know, you're a professor of nursing and you've worked longer clinically than I have, Rachel, in I, it is. It's a calling. I think for us to work in a public sector, you're not in here for the accolades. Uh, mm. You're here certainly to be of, of service um, to people, in my view, that can actually can't afford to see a psychologist. Mm. Uh, I know that's another conversation altogether, but I think one of the things that I have found, at least um, in our particular ICU service, is that we have provided you know, multidisciplinary, a very holistic view of supporting our patients and our fauna and broadly the staff because mm-hmm. of the kinds of presentations that are very unique and oftentimes very extraordinary medically, yeah. but the whole entire gamut, you know, the psychosocial, social issues, um, and what impact that can have on other, you know, the patient's recovery, but also the impact it could have on a wider scale for a very complex system that is an intensive mm. care mm. and um, I have you know it's a huge learning curve I haven't been in ICU <laughs> as long as um, quite a lot of your uh, contemporaries and yourself but I do wish to acknowledge you know it's really hard work mm. it is high stakes um, you know there is a lot of um, I think you know huge need to ensure that our, our own hora is well and truly intact and maintained mm-hmm. in order to be of service to mm-hmm. you know a very very challenging work environment not to say that people don't want to work in these environments because you know there is a sense mm-hmm. of um, achievement and, and purpose when mm-hmm. you do know that you contributed to a great outcome yeah 
especially in critical care. Yeah, yeah. So do most intensive cares, do you think, have um, psychologists attached to them or available? Um, I think slowly that's changing. I know that in addition to our current, where we are in our hospital, there are other health psychologists Mm -hmm. uh, around. I can't comment in terms of how much um, in ter- regarding um, FT mm. or, mm. you know, um, exactly how many people are on the ground um, working, but I do know that they do. Yeah. Um, clearly not enough. Yeah, um, <laughs> never enough. <laughs> never enough, but I think it, it is a great start. Yeah. I know that us in another um, hospital, for sure, does have access to um, health psychologists mm. to assist um, patients, Rufana, Teams maybe, but it varies, and it depends yeah. on the case and context specific. Mm. And yeah. so, what does a health psychologist do? Okay. <laughs> and I'm sure it's not <laughs> not a small job description. <laughs> not really. Um, in a nutshell, I, I suppose um, it's seeing people. What I often say: seeing people like you and me, really, with a physical health condition and identifying what is the psychosocial impact of having a health condition, Mm -hmm. um, clearly that comes with that, the challenges, things like um, how do we improve people's adherence and uptake to medical and lifestyle advice Mm -hmm. is a key one. Mm -hmm. As we know, adherence or non-adherence is a huge problem in healthcare (laughs) um, for quite some time. Um, But also how we identify and assess um, the prevalence of very common mental health conditions because mm-hmm. it's not unusual to be diagnosed with a long-term condition than to then develop by mm. virtue of managing the complex health that, that may have to develop states of depression, anxiety, some even trauma, uh, you know, quite a lot of different mm-hmm. mental health issues that are a consequence of their health, their physical health condition. And so health psychologists um, are trained to help identify, assess, and provide evidence-based treatments to ameliorate a raft of different psychological problems that emanate from their physical health condition. Mm. So you'll find us here yeah. in ICU, <laughs> uh, but they're also in cardiology, uh, oncology, respiratory, um, women's health, bariatrics, things I can think of, diabetes. So you mm. would probably, if we're lucky enough to if you think about a physical health condition, the ideal is to have a psychologist or a health psychologist within that because they can certainly help to assist with some of the challenges that our, our patients face when living with a chronic condition, mm. uh, as an example. Mm. Um, they're registered psychologists first and foremost. They do uh, a minimum training um, at bachelor's, postgraduate. I can only speak for where I went, so my my alma mater, so we have to do a master's in health psychology or my day master's of science majoring in health psychology. Um, that's changed now, of course, because mm. there is a bona fide master's in health psychology at Auckland. And then you have to do a postgraduate diploma in health psychology, which is a full year, very intensive internship where you see your own patients closely supervised by seasoned clinicians mm. um, in different parts of physical health mm. um, across uh, Auckland DHB Metro, but also we've moved further afield as well, which is pleasing. We've had also um, our first, as I understand it, first Northland DHB oh, health psychologist yeah. completed Fantastic. her internship. 
because that is a huge yeah. unmet need. Yeah. So yeah. yeah. So she's someone I'd examined for her um, finals not so long ago. <laughs> Fantastic. So, yeah. Yeah. so I hope that kind of gives you. So that's just a one-on-one, but equally. We are trained around health promotion um, when we get the opportunity um, for me because I've, I'm uh, entering a 20 years post-qualification for, for um, having trained uh, as a health psych here. It's about working with the system, mm. the very complex system, and that is healthcare. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we won't unpack that in this interview. No. <laughs> no. And what sorts of tools do you use, you know, doing this sort of work? Well, it depends on what the presentation is or the diagnosis. So um, our fallback position is we utilize evidence-based treatments, talking therapies that includes cognitive behavioral therapy, acceptance and commitment therapy, or two that come to mind or is also your classic um, behavioral um, techniques that we get taught, but also I think, especially in a healthcare setting, you know, your very good basic counseling, Rogeri therapies are also mm-hmm. very valuable because oftentimes people just want to have someone that understands to a certain extent their disease, mm-hmm. their trajectory, and their progression not related to them, but can give them just the, the space to engage in emotional disclosure. Yeah. Just to really talk about how difficult and how tough it is mm. either surviving mm. the, the admission, which is what we often see in ICU. You know, they're just grateful and thankful, but equally they're still having to deal with complications yeah. perhaps or, or some of the functional limitations mm. that may be temporary, some not, as we have yeah. seen. Um, and so having that opportunity to foster adjustment to their living with a health condition, we call that illness adjustment. Um, so yeah, so th- those are the kinds of things that we have found have been helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, for in a, working in an ICU, I can't um, underpin the importance of working with the team. Mm-hmm. You know, it is very, very important that we look to the expertise of the nurses, the nurse specialists, um, coordinators, the doctors, of course, um, but also the allied health team. Mm-hmm. So what I had um, valued working in our particular organization was being able to access your dietitians, um, speech-language therapy, physiotherapy. Mm-hmm. I haven't had a chance to work with OTs or occupational <laughs> therapy, but, yeah. you know, I think, and social work, of course. Um, so it has been really lovely to be able to provide that wraparound service for these people yeah. who are, you know, very, very unwell and very vulnerable, mm, mm. Um, not just physically, but psychosocially as well, mm. and how we can help them to, yeah. you know, um, progress from that state yeah. to a state of someone hopefully that will thrive and flourish having survived mm. their admission in intensive mm. care. And I guess having that holistic approach to it with the team, um, you know, you're sort of more likely mm. to produce that sort of outcome, aren't you? Absolutely. Yeah. We all sing for the same song sheet. Yeah. Inadvertently, we support each other as well because sometimes mm. you could be seeing the same patient uh, for quite some time, and mm. it's nice to know that we all have a part and a huge contribution to play in you know maximizing the outcomes for these people because they yeah. have. You know, we've invested, rightly so, huge, yeah. uh, you know, interventions from all levels of expertise. And it'll be, you know, it's wonderful, actually, when they come back and visit us, mm. right? Because they look <laughs> so them. different yeah. to how they came, you know, pre-op and how much more they've progressed. Yeah. 
So do you see them through to the community as well? And, you know, it sort depends of follow on the through patient population. Yeah. Um, I think at the moment, my team and I tend to probably just see the ones in the, the transplant space mm. because that's kind of the remit that we follow them through. Not so much in intensive care unless they progress to other parts of our hospital. Mm. They can certainly be, you know, if they meet criteria, for example, and certainly the need is there, they can be entitled to it. Yeah. But it all depends on each case. Mm. Mm. And I think coming back to your point, you know, about seeing patients come back to visit us, um, we, and this has actually come up in some of the other podcasts too, that we're quite focused just on this particular time that they're with us. Mm. And we're not necessarily thinking ahead to when they do go home. <laughs> yes. Um, in terms of the ongoing sequelae of their ICU stay, particularly psychologically, um, in terms of anxiety, depression, PTSD. Mm-hmm. Um, and what do we know about that? What do you say? Well, I think for better or for worse, you may be familiar with the Poppy study. I know it's a little mm-hmm. bit dated mm-hmm. now, but they were nurse-led. Yeah, they Amazing. were nurse-led intervention. That's yeah. correct. <laughs> <laughs> but they were one of the earlier ones to identify that um, surviving an ICU admission or a critical care admission does have some mm. fallout emanating from that, such as the, the psychological consequences. Um, for me, when you think about it in a trauma context, they survived a near-death experience, and some mm. of them may have had multiple times where they've had to be reassessed or re-intubated and then desedated and, and so on and so forth. That in itself can actually create, it can be ripe for someone developing some trauma symptoms, mm. not necessarily meeting what we would categorize as an acute stress disorder or post-traumatic stress or PTSD. But as you rightly pointed out, Rachel, that it can happen. And I do think that's one area, um, the longer that I've been sort of uh, working in this particular mind, that needs to be addressed probably mm. more readily because... Um, people may not come back to the baseline functionality that they came in the first place. And so if we think about that in terms of the trajectory, you just have to think that loss of self, Mm -hmm. grieving for the person whom they were before Mm -hmm. they had their health event and then necessitating an ICU admission, for example. Um, Some of them may also still have be in that recovery rehab mode and they'll Mm -hmm. be still limited, once again, not back to the baseline functionality that they may have presented. Um, But also... We're used to being in hospital, but I think we forget that this can actually be quite a, a very scary place. Yeah. Um, uh, you probably have seen it in your own clinical practice. You know, our patients are very vulnerable. They're, you can see it in their eyes. So when I go into a bed space and I've not met them in the past or, you know, you get referred for the first time, it's just that loss of autonomy. Mm. And for us, you know, psychologically, we all like to have a sense of control and autonomy. And I know... Because of the condition that they're in in ICU, they can't necessarily be in control over very basic functions. Mm. And that in itself, when I have counseled people um, after they've finished in, um, in an ICU setting, is that you know that kind of that loss of dignity, feeling really um, embarrassed about asking about just the day to day, needing to go to the restroom or, you know, they didn't quite make it and so they had an accident. Mm. So all of those things, I think we forget. Yeah. You know, uh, very vulnerable and, uh, of course, anxiety probably will be through the roof just because Mm. they're in a very foreign environment. They're having to entrust 
pretty much everything, mm. you know, mm. the basic self-care, their livelihoods, for that matter, to someone else. And that I think that in itself is a huge thing to overcome, mm. especially if you are used to being yeah. in control. <laughs> in control. <laughs> you know, yeah. um, and to me, that's one of the things mm. um, people can develop different psychological states, and that would be normal. Yeah. Under some pretty extraordinary circumstances, which I do want to, you know, um, emphasize here is, is that they don't necessarily have to have already a pre-existing mental health condition. Mm. There are some instances whereby they come, they might not have had it, but after having been here for a period of time, it's not uncommon. But you may not necessarily meet diagnostic criteria, but they may yeah. have features of it. But that doesn't mean, like you say, we we don't address it. Yeah. Mm. There's some simple things we could and should be doing. <laughs> you know, like you say, it's um, mm. because we want to try and stop this from happening, right, or sure. from getting to the worst end of the spectrum. So yeah. coming back to the bedside, mm. everyday stuff at the bedside. When I, yeah, so there, I think there are things like um, in our particular unit, we use those patient diaries, I think, in mm. time. I, I'd be curious to see what the efficacy and the benefits are those. I know that's a different project. <laughs> yeah. It's a totally different talk. And a good colleague of ours is yes. <laughs> well and truly an expert in that space. Yeah. I think that helps because it gives people a bit of a history. But uh, if you're asking just what we can do right then and there, I think just... Um, you know, introducing who you are, your role, so seeking permission, you know, is this a good time or a space for me to engage with you? Mm. This is what I would do. So consent is very at the core of this Um, because that gives them the right of reply, right? Mm. So what if they don't feel well? Yeah. Like they want to engage with me or you, but actually, you know, they feel literally unwell. They're like Mm. maybe nauseous or whatever. They're in a lot of pain. Yeah. So (laughs) they're not in a good headspace right then and there. Mm. So I think that's one. Anything we can do to give them a sense of control, like, okay, so when would you like to come and see me? Mm-hmm. So one of the things that, we, that I have seen firsthand, so um, the nurses at the bed space will have a schedule, mm-hmm. and oftentimes we would say, yeah, negotiate that with your patient or client, actually, because mm-hmm. I think if they can converse with you, and I don't have to converse too much if, mm-hmm. you know, if they're tracking, but there are other ways, as you and I know, to communicate, yeah. um, whether they can sound it out or lip read or right or entering an iPad or a keypad um, that I think helps mm. also I think we need to ensure that they try and get as much good sleep because yeah. you and I know that's a recipe for disaster for any of us if mm-hmm. you had some <laughs> level of sleep deprivation yeah and that's one of the things I've become more interested in having worked um, in this particular space is how poor the sleep becomes mm. after enduring because there's so many yeah. <laughs> yeah, stimuli that actually will impact on their ability to sleep. Um, identifying, and this is something that we, I think, we're improving delirium. Mm. Not the ones that are just the, that we know is kind of out of that normal spectrum that we would observe, yeah. but the ones that are really quiet and withdrawn. Because hypo-delirium. That's yeah. correct. Yeah. The, the ones that don't say a word, actually, are, are the ones that we should also be screening for. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, those are the kind of the practical things I think yeah. I can think about. And when I teach here in, in our unit, I just say, you know, the nurses really do become the bridge mm. or even a lifeline from 
the medical team that come in, you know, during rounds, but they really are there with that same nurse, and they do become that person or that patient's um, conduit to some level of control, autonomy, yeah. hopefully kindness, yeah. compassion, that human connection, because it, it can be a very lonely space in yeah. between visiting hours. As we know, COVID has given us some challenges when it came to visiting mm. Fano and in places like the ICU. So yeah. those are challenges, and I think the nursing um, teams that I've worked with have done a huge job. You know, they've fulfilled that role mm. to be, you know, that extended support, genuine support for patients that have languished here or, you know, are vulnerable, feel, fearful, yeah. missing their families um, for a good reason. Mm. And I think even um, out for us in New Zealand, we're very lucky. Mm-hmm. Um, but even outside of COVID visiting restrictions, you know, the nurses probably spend more time every day with the patients than often the relatives of Fano can because of so many issues that mm-hmm. are going on at home. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, sort of trying to normalise the abnormal, and like you say, providing those connections, those mm-hmm. human connections with patients while mm-hmm. they're here with us. Yes. Um, so important yeah and and absolutely and so one of the things what we hear from our patients what mattered to them was their nurse you know treated them mm. as a human mm. not just their condition mm. I'm, I'm sure you know i'm preaching to the converted i guess but you know we forget that you know sometimes yeah. you get so busy so you get bogged down i believe and please i don't mean this in any sense of judgment but you know, we all have, you know, my list of things we need, procedurally, we need <laughs> yeah. to do. But oftentimes, I think we forget that there is a person in front of you and, you know, it's important to maybe walk them through the rationale for why we're doing it this way. And um, just even saying, you know, what did you used to do? You know, just connecting mm. beyond mm. just your health condition while they're there. Yeah. And one of the things that um, my patients that have, that I've spoken to after they've, spend a period of time in an intensive care setting is that you know that my nurse made me feel heard they validated they, they treated me as a person first they asked me about my interests you know within yeah. reason you know I know there's professional boundaries but you can still be cordial you can still be interested and not just be so focused on their health cares if that mm. makes sense mm. um and yeah Great sense of humor. Yeah. Goes a long way. You know, <laughs> can certainly help. Can't yeah, it? yeah. So it's that. Anything that I guess gave them a bit of even a reprieve or a break yeah. from being stuck yeah. in the hospital. Explaining what's happening in the real world and talking yes. about what's going on yeah. with the rugby. And it Those takes, kinds of yeah. events. Yeah. I always think of um, a very dear old colleague <laughs> who worked here who... Um, you know, would sit and watch the rugby on a Saturday afternoon with their patients if they were able to. And we always used to give them a hard time about it, <laughs> sitting there, but, but it was sitting alongside the patient and, you know, just being engaged with them, mm-hmm. um, sitting with them while they have their meals yeah. rather than sitting there eating alone. Or Which is a very, uh, yeah, a weird concept, really, yeah. if, if we were all back in our own homes, right? Exactly. exactly. It is the time to congregate celebrate mm. and just connect mm. and, and I, so yeah being exactly connecting and physically emotionally yeah. sort of on some level mm. actually being with the patient That's right. yeah. mm. I guess the other group that is often sort of a bit of an invisible victim <laughs> of the ICU stay is the family 
Mm. Um, and you know there's a lot of evidence too now to show the effect that it has on them mm. are there simple things that we can be doing to try and sort of you know repair and and look after them mm. I think firstly um, you identifying it that we haven't mm. provided that same level of pastoral care or support or you know um, yeah um, that's important mm. um, we do notice that I guess for so far what I've observed and what I've only been privy to is being um, a, an active participant during FANO meetings mm. so where they can um, hear exactly from the specialist and the nurse that's involved and the nurse specialist as well in terms of where their family member is at and what the sort of um, intentions are and the goals or mm-hmm. the trajectory. Um, clearly, if, if the situation is looking pretty, um, you know... Grim. Grim and undesirable for mm-hmm. us, in spite of all the best efforts, I think that's where... Um, once again, having the fauna room here has been helpful. And to be fair, I think our nursing colleagues have been very good at um, providing that. And also our kamatoas and aquias, mm. when appropriate, they have been our chaplains as well, have been yeah. very good. I've been called upon a handful of times by nurse specialist colleagues. Sadly, one of them had has gone from mm-hmm. our space. She was a very prolific referrer. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you can imagine who that is. She will remain anonymous <laughs> when it asks permission. But she was very good at identifying that yeah. the patient wasn't just a patient in front, but it was the system, it was the fauna, mm-hmm. and then the impact it had mm-hmm. coming in here day in and day out and seeing yeah. the ups and downs um, of watching vigil and mm. being very helpless and hopeless. Mm. So, yeah, I, you know, a handful of times I've been asked just in a very informal, more of a counseling, a very supportive session. I've, uh, it's not been uncommon where I've recommended to that final member to seek their own input via their GP mm-hmm. or an NGO. Um, I suppose the upshot of COVID, you know, the free talk 1737 helpline or hotline has been, um, you know, people mm. can access that um, as well as um, wonderful NGOs such as the Mental Health Foundation. They've got some great resources, mm. um, Grief Center, Skylight. There, there are mm. a lot of really great external organizations beyond what a public health yeah. service can provide. And so yeah. oftentimes it's just holding them in that safe space, you know, someone that has work in an intensive care, able to provide that psychosocial um, mm. first aid, really. Yeah. Um, yeah. Some of the time, I often do that either on my own or with the nurse specialist mm. that's referred, the family member. Um, and then whatever is appropriate on the basis of what they bring up to mm. those sorts of sessions. That's more informal because clearly the patient is ours and... Yeah, mm. but you're right, though. I, there's certainly a lot more we could do, mm. to mm. be fair. Um, yeah. But it, regrettably, that just comes down to um, workforce capacity yeah. and mm. the demands, you know, exceeding the, the current FT allocation we have mm. in our particular organization. Yeah. But mm. I guess, you know, at the bedside, thinking of 
about it mm. and actually recognising that the family are <laughs> helpless and hopeless yeah. and, and need to have engagement and explanation and, mm. and good communication along the way can go a long way. That's right, and that's the core of that. Um, and I have spoken to our, our nursing colleagues in an in, in service capacity around um, communication. It has mm. to be very clear um, concise. Mm. I know um, we. It's important not to garner false hope, but also yeah. not be too doom and gloom. So very balanced, but probably repeating a very consistent message is, is mm. important too. Yeah, you know, um, and having an open door policy, I suppose, of say, you know, do you have any questions? Mm-hmm. Not assuming that the, you know the father or the family members in the bed space know exactly what's going on. Yeah, true. Even having like a soft handover would. That, you know, with the team's permission, sometimes mm-hmm. helps because it's that as you as you say, communication is very very important. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes, if we don't have good communication, um, the families are left sitting with a lot more distress than what they ought to be yeah. sitting with because yeah. they're not clear on something that was said in a fano meeting or at the bed space, or they just have their own um, beliefs. Yeah. Yeah. Know, perceptions about what is going on. Mm. Very easy for that to sort of um, spiral. <laughs> Absolutely. And you can get caught up in awfulizing or catastrophizing mm. um, what's going on mm. when, in fact, maybe it was, you know, one snippet they weren't that clear about and, and you know, mm. spiraled out of control in their minds. Yeah. Yeah. So mm. better to try and um, preempt these things than yeah, have to pick up the pieces later. That's right. I yeah. would just ask, you know, um, yeah. being good open questions. Um, sometimes I think we forget to, if there are visitors or family members going into the bed space, that is not the loved one that they know. Mm. Mm. And I don't know how often we ask this. This yeah. is just literally what I've just thought of, you know, as yeah. I, you know, um, what was that like for them? Mm. Um, especially if their loved one can't converse with them, um, that might must be quite confronting. Mm. Not for everybody, but that could be quite jarring in itself. Yeah. And perhaps, as you say, at the bedside, maybe even just asking, you know, how are you okay? You mm. know, just just honing in on, I guess, the bodily cues. Yeah. That people might, you know, I guess, display when when you're there with them. Mm. I've always, um, I guess, also found that, you know, relatives feel that often they have to be here and have to be here from the moment the visiting starts till the moment the visiting finishes, which is wonderful, um, but also thinking to give them permission to step away for a while and look after themselves. Yeah, I absolutely agree with Um, that. But also giving them the reassurance that, if you need to, <laughs> you'll get them back or you'll call them or keep them updated. Yeah, yeah. and I think that's a really important key message you, mm. you've identified. Yes, I think, um, I suppose there's this uh, expectation. Mm. For, I don't know where that comes from to be here. Maybe you can comment, but you're right. I've noticed mm. it too. And, yeah, I think it behooves us to actually give the loved ones permission to, you mm. know, you might want to chop and change. You might yeah. you know, ring you, as you say, if it's emergent or if it's a critical mm. issue. But otherwise, for us to inadvertently support the loved ones, they need to engage in their own self-cares. Yeah. You yeah. Know, um, their families are well taken care of here. And for them to be of service mm. to their families, what I have said in the past is that you must do the basics. 
Yeah. Eat well, or as best as you can. I know it's yeah. going to be tough <laughs> when you're in a stress situation. Sleep, very mm. integral. Distractions, mm. doing some form of physical activity mm. because our bodies don't like it very much when you have far too much excess adrenaline, cortisol, all of those stress hormones that are great for an activating event, but not so great if not it's long-term. chronic. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, hmm. yeah. And I think, you know, I've sort of said to people sometimes, you know, now's your opportunity, essentially, to, you know, go go for a walk in the park. I'll look after your loved one so yeah. that you can go and do that because they're going to need you later on. Yes. You know? and Once they're out of here. Yeah. 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 That's a really good yeah. way of putting it, isn't it? It's almost like giving them permission to recharge their batteries, mm, mm. Or, you know, or even, um, yeah, because, as you say, there's still work to be done once... Yeah their loved ones do survive yeah whatever um or even when they go home later on too you know thinking way down the track <laughs> true that's <laughs> yeah. right yeah absolutely hmm. so we've mentioned the elephant in the room a couple of times <laughs> in terms of COVID, COVID yes. and i don't think we can get away from it <laughs> so um, 2020 has been a pretty unusual year hmm. 2021 doesn't necessarily look as though it's going to be that much different how how's 2020 been for you let's start with that very kind of you to ask one of the very few people i think i sit with most of us in uh, in society not just in healthcare it's been a very very surreal um challenging Mm. time um we're busy enough as it is as a as a um, healthcare system i think it posed certainly unique challenges on how we, um, how would we respond to an unknown quantity? Mm-hmm. Maybe there's some parallels there. You know, a lot of our patients sit with huge levels of uncertainty. Yeah. Maybe they're the experts yeah. sometimes. <laughs> but I think for me, what I found was how do I um, uh, maintain my own resiliency? Because I knew potentially this was going to be a very long, drawn out mm. um, health crisis or event, uh, pandemic, as we know. But also, um, how do I balance that with meeting, you know, the needs of my loved ones, my team, because I manage a small team of psychologists, um, but also how I could be of support and service to my colleagues, Mm. such as yourself, that are actually the essential frontline workers. And I still remember that, you know, um, when we didn't know that what was going to happen. And, you know, we have been very fortunate, perhaps... Mm in our response to it, the government response to the pandemic, but also our geographic location Mm. or Mm. our isolation is actually, this is my own personal take, has served us well, I think, because we've learned from even our, you know, our Australian counterparts what things could be like Mm. because of we're quite removed as such. We have been lucky and we've learned um, and you're more up with the play with that, wearing your academic hat. You know, we've learned so much more about what's happened in the NHS or in, in Europe mm. and in the U.S. Yeah, yeah. And so we were able to, I guess, collect some of that information to galvanize how we would respond. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I can't say it was the most... Uh, <laughs> it's been a challenging year, Yeah, for sure, and it's impacted on all different levels because we've, we've had to... Um, pivot I know that's the COVID term du jour <laughs> we really did have to pivot 
um, and be responsive with the notion that we may not actually be in the same teams for quite some time. So mm. I had to redeploy my teams working separately because for us, we're a small team. If any of us even was remotely COVID positive yeah. or, you know, heaven forbid, and the ramifications of isolation and com- mm. you know, getting well better, should I say, it was huge. So yeah. I am grateful for um, our managers and our um you know colleagues here they understood the some of the tension between wanting to be here but equally if you have a very small workforce um and you know at the end of the day how do we support our essential key workers was Mm. sort of the key thing that was in the forefront of my mind so during um higher level lockdowns mm. were you working from home were you still coming in as so staff yeah it's a very good question so we um we divided into small teams so i being i guess in my particular role i i was more here mm. uh, albeit maybe consulting in a very different way using mm. zoom functionalities or in the pre earlier early days was just going back into ver- telehealth yeah, <laughs> not virtual consult. Just old school phone. Yeah, <laughs> was one. Um, and but my teams were, you know, one was in a different site, and yes, they were. Some of them were also working from home. Mm. Clearly, we weren't able to provide that face to face. I was asked to probably more um, informally just check in with teams just mm-hmm. to see how they were managing and coping. Yeah, um, you know, with the notion of. COVID that it's coming it almost seems somewhat of a bit of an anti-climax actually um, but I think we're that's a good thing mm. because mm. we didn't see the deluge or the what how awful it could have been yeah compared to other countries yeah Mm. And I mean, we've been so incredibly lucky. Mm. Um, we've worked hard for it, but yes. we have. Yes. Um, and you know, you used the word surreal mm. because it is so different in this country to anywhere else. Yeah. Do you think we know what is happening overseas? <laughs> we sort of talked a little bit about this before we started the interview. Yeah. And I um, guess it comes back to trying to. You know, you see see in the media mm-hmm. or read online what's happening, mm-hmm. um, but can we truly sort of understand what our colleagues are going through and, and how do we try and understand and empathise, I guess? Mm-hmm. Very good question. Um, I, think, I think firstly we can acknowledge how lucky we are. Um, I, to answer the question, I think we can be empathic towards the challenges they face on a physical, psychological, emotional level. Um, I don't necessarily think we completely fully appreciate how fortunate we are at the moment in our position, even though we are in a level one as we speak. Um, But having spoken to my colleagues that have come back and have worked in the NHS, you know, they've seen the the impact, mm. um, tragic impact of what COVID has done to their you know their healthcare system. Similar words, you know, it's shock, uh, disbelief, and just surreal. Mm. And they're very just so very very thankful and grateful mm. that they can come back home. And you know, you and I can have this conversation mm. 
face to face as opposed to a Zoom, yeah. perhaps, you know, or a phone yeah. call. Yeah, well, I have to say, and this is probably the first face to face interview. Really? <laughs> since No, I did one uh, about, I'm just trying to think, June or July last year. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the rest have all been on Zoom. So it is very nice to sit in yeah. the same room as someone. <laughs> yes. So, yeah. Yeah. So I, the short answer, I, I don't think so. I don't know. Mm. Unless you've, you know, people we know come back from yeah. those places where, you know, pen, the, the actual pandemic is at a crisis point. Mm. Um, certainly, you know, we, we've had COVID cases here, but not to the same level. No. Um, in ICU, for example. Mm. Mm. And I guess the other thing for staff that we might work with is that a lot of our staff are from overseas and have family, Mm. um, sometimes children of their own over there or parents, close relatives, who are going through a terrible ordeal. Mm. So I guess thinking of ways that we can support them, um, strategies to help them, Mm. Um, while they're miles away from their loved ones who are sick and dying. That's right. I think firstly, you know, COVID or not, I think we it, it really is a great idea to just to check in with each other. You know, we work in a pretty challenging, complex environment anyways. Mm. I don't think it's a, a bad idea just to, you know, say how things have been for people. Mm. Yes, you know, my heart goes out to especially um, our colleagues that do have families overseas and they can't get there if something untoward did mm. happen in the context of COVID. Um, just, you know, uh, just doing what you would normally do, I suppose, you know, being a kind human person, mm. just asking them genuinely, are they okay? And just, you know, offering just that supportive ear whenever. Mm. Um encouraging them to connect so luckily i suppose we do have the ability to use different platforms yeah you know there are so many um without naming them of course yeah. you know? <laughs> we're not sponsors yeah we're not sponsors so we better be careful but there's a lot of technologies now yeah. that um i guess you can still feel connected at least you can still see them albeit you know um miles or sorry kilometers thousands of kilometers away i guess whatever um just checking in connecting communicating Mm. um as much as they can is very important yeah yeah Um, yeah especially if your loved one's sick i mean that's tricky isn't it so it's hard enough to grieve when your loved one's here let alone overseas when really you have to have some pretty compelling extenuating circumstances to be able to travel yeah yeah and not knowing if you can come get, back yeah <laughs> get there get back yeah yeah, yeah. Mm. it's really tough for people mm. yeah. yeah so I guess how do we look after ourselves here uh, <laughs> yeah good question I think firstly um just manage one's expectations you know looking after ourselves at the moment I think every day we should just be grateful it's a good day we're still able to live a fairly normal mm. love you know life I um looking after you know just the basics I know we take this for granted a lot of it is common sense Rachel just like you know eating well mm. I mean sure you can all have our small vices or whatever it <laughs> but not you know nothing into great excess um 
exercising, doing some form of physical activity, um, talking to people, connecting, you know, spending t what I call high quality connections. And I think the Mental Health Foundation also um, endorses this, where through to people that really get you, you know, your people, mm -hmm. you know, people that have your best interests at heart. They are there when you know when you catch up with them, they're present, they're with yeah. you. They take you for who you are, the good, bad, and everything else in between. Mm -hmm. um, I think connection is a very important mm -hmm. part to look after ourselves. Um, going to work or doing volunteer, if there's no longer the you know the option for that for whatever reason, um, being of service to others. Mm -hmm. We know that people that do volunteer do have a better you know overall quality of life, mm -hmm. physical and mental well-being. You know when you look at all the different indices of what makes a good quality of life. Mm -hmm. Those are people that have a meaning and purpose yeah. and are able to still give back. I think that's important. Um, I go back to that managing expectations. I think most of us high-functioning people have all these great expectations of what we'd like to achieve and what we'd like to do. I think COVID actually has taught us that you don't have to have all of those all the time. And mm -hmm. Unplugging and disconnecting with your loved ones. Yeah. Um, I certainly um, had as challenges having homeschooling, but it was also <laughs> quite nice. Yeah. To be able to just not be so busy all the time. Mm -hmm. I'm sure you might have found that as, you know, with your um, loved ones. Um, yeah, and I think what it has taught us is just, I, for me personally, it's just, you know, there's nothing wrong with just slowing down and even giving oneself permission to do nothing. Yeah. And I know that's a very foreign concept for us in health because you almost feel, think, this is strange. Mm -hmm. You know, like, that's when we're not allowed to use the word quiet. Yeah. <laughs> on, on a ship. On a Friday. Oh, too, exactly. Shoot. Oh, no. Oh, no. And I am on duty, so, oh. you know what I mean? So, you know what I mean? So, yeah. even things like that, I do yeah. believe um, it's taught us just to be truly grateful for the people, you know, that, that are in our lives um, and how it's important just to be mindful, mm. not just the, you know, just being present in the moment, mm. taking each day as it comes. I said to a patient not so long ago who was quite distressed about what's happening is, you know, perhaps not focusing on the day-to-day -day if that's too much, if they feel so overwhelmed. Just think about what you can manage and control right now or even in the next minute, mm. you know, or the next hour. So we sort of incrementally increase the level of efficacy, control, especially when they do feel like, you know, they're out of control and they're not managing, they're not coping mm. with lots of different issues in mm. addition to the impact of COVID. Yeah, I think that's really important, isn't it? Because, you know, going back to what we were talking about before, we've all gone into a new year. Mm. <laughs> and we were talking about a new year and a new start. Yes. Um, but recognising that we really have no idea what's going to happen again this year. Yeah. Um, so focusing on shorter-term priorities yes. not necessarily goals but yeah. just intentions yeah. we're not using resolutions it's no, no longer trendy because <laughs> people break them very quickly uh -huh. but it's just intentions actually mm. what do you what are your intentions in keeping with one's values and that differs for every single one of us but i think if we actually um you know try to uphold as much of those values you most of the time, most of us can um, certainly experience this notion of thriving, flourishing, because you are you're, you're following what's important to you, your value system, whatever that may be. As long as it's not harmful, mm -hmm. that's the caveat to this. <laughs> Don't want to get pinged. 
it's um, it's caught me out before. <laughs> Cheeky <laughs> clients can kind of use that, you know. Oh, yeah. but you know, you say it. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So it's just you know, so in the service of one's values, um, and just acknowledging that we all have some, you know, we all have some distressing thoughts, and that's normal. You know, it's that mm-hmm. common humanity. Um, a lot of work, not. I have great colleagues that have worked in self-compassion and how important that is in medicine, nursing, and in psychology. Um, how that is so integral, more so than ever. You know, we need to be kinder to ourselves mm. and to each other because we're all having our own internal battles, worries, some well and truly appropriate, some probably a little bit on the more severe spectrum. And, mm. you know, it's important that um, we acknowledge that um, and seek out help and support sooner rather mm. than later. Not necessarily even a healthcare professional, just a confidant, a dear friend. Yeah, yeah. sitting down for a cup of tea yeah. and having a chat. That's right. Yeah. Um, is important um, to help. Because yeah. one of the things I think all of us face, regardless of what our you know, what our work is or what we're doing right now in 2021 is that we have to just deal with uncertainty. Mm. And um, I think, though, we have to be able to have that belief that we can cope with some level of uncertainty. Mm. And how do you do that? I guess just turn to the things you can still manage and control Mm. that is in the service of your values. It's not going to cause you, you know, harm, physical Mm. or emotional, the whole thing, the whole gamut, really. Um, And just engaging in productive, positive distractions. You know, I talked about doing things that give you a sense of meaning and purpose for Mm. yourself and others. Yeah, yeah. So those are the kinds of things, I think, um, because of the unknown and how things will continue to change. We just need to be responsive within reason and not get too overly, um, I guess upset if we have these goals that we can't achieve but you know at the moment it's very difficult to achieve yeah you know the goals we like to set for ourselves so I suppose what I'm trying to get at long-windedly and I'm sorry <laughs> no no it's so good being okay with what I've done today is good enough and mm. I think for me I that's probably key learning actually mm. as a clinician but also just as another person civilian is that what we do in any given day mm. has to be good enough. Good enough, yeah, yeah. And not trying to overachieve and, yeah, reach the next tier today, yeah. maybe tomorrow. Maybe tomorrow. And yeah. uh, celebrate the wins, mm. but also just learn from maybe, you know, some of the shortcomings. But that's human, isn't it? Mm. We can't consistently, I think, perform at that level. There yeah. needs to be some reprieve, yeah. some time for, you know, to restore, recalibrate, recover. Mm. Mm. Do you think we've got better at celebrating the wins? <laughs> in New Zealand? Uh, <laughs> or in our health system? Uh, um, we'll, get, we'll start with New Zealand. <laughs> <laughs> That's a difficult question. Yeah. I don't know. You should ask the Prime Minister that. Um, I hope so. But I think mm. New Zealanders are, you know, very modest, humble yeah. people. Yeah. Um, depends on what happens with the America's Cup, actually. Uh-huh. I know they're racing this afternoon, so it'll yeah. be interesting to see. <laughs> yeah. And in terms of um, recognising when things are starting to harm us, I guess, Mm. and heading towards um, that sort of end of the spectrum, how can we do that in ourselves? So if you find yourself not coping, Mm. um, I think, firstly, it's important to 
acknowledge it mm. and then um, turn to a loved one, confidant, you know, that this is what I'm feeling or this is how I'm thinking. Um, clearly, there's also uh, lots of different avenues. They can see their GP in the first instance. They could see a healthcare practitioner that can provide some counseling. May see a psychologist. Um, I think a lot of organizations also provide employee assistance programs, so that's available. Um, informally, you know, some of our psychologists can, you know, just have a, you know, a peer, you know, mm. just a peer consult or checking in with each other um, is okay. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And what sort of, I guess, signs and symptoms for medical, you know, technology? Uh, terminology mm. might we be feeling or exhibiting when you're in when we're starting yeah starting to feel a little bit distressed maybe or I suppose it depends on every individual but things that are kind of out of that person's uh, quote-unquote normal level of functioning mm. you know if things like they can't go to work you know, they've withdrawn, especially if they tend to be quite an outgoing, sort of mm. various kind of person. Even their language, you know, the way their narr- their own narrative, or the way they interact is mm-hmm. on the whole a little bit negative, or there's a bit of, not a bit, there's more perhaps a sense of hopelessness and helplessness. So that's the kind of thing that, um, you know, might signal that something is not quite right. Mm-hmm. You know, them expressing that they're not themselves, or they're feeling down or low, or anxious to stress all those yeah. different terms um, drinking more mm. of the wrong stuff turning to um, you know substances non-prescribed um, those sorts of things yeah. oftentimes though loved ones notice a change mm. and um, they you know they're really good because they are able to they well they get great collateral information but they also notice quite a marked shift in that person's demeanor mm. and their behavior because sometimes the person themselves they're so um, you know they're in that space it's hard to think yeah. rationally and logically can't blame them because they are highly distressed and our brains can't cope mm. very well when you're in that state yeah um, yeah. And in the work context, and that's why I said, you know, I think one of the things that we can do here is just genuinely checking in with each other. So having these huddles, you know, um, mm. are very, very important. Yeah. I don't assume just because someone has a very, you know, uh, their demeanor can be happy on the outside or, mm. you know, just fairly neutral that this doesn't necessarily mean they're not, you know, wanting to seek help or they're yeah. actually struggling. They just may not. Give themselves permission sure. to ask for help. Yeah, yeah. And that's oftentimes what I say to, to patients of mine that are uncomfortable initially with the notion of being in a therapeutic context. It's like, well, yeah, it's, it's you know, it's, it's difficult initially mm. to acknowledge that these are issues that have not served them well mm. and made it even more unwell, perhaps. And part of that is that first step in that, you know, recovery in some ways is acknowledging having the insight, the willingness to change. Mm. So mm. important. Yeah. 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 But certainly reaching out, you yeah. know, in a nutshell is, is important. And we, we have lots of different health um, helplines available, mm. which I can email to you and you can okay. just um, Thank you. upload that if you wish. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. But, I mean, the 1737 yeah. free text or free phone um, is certainly available. Uh, Mental Health Foundation has got wonderful um, mm. resources. Um, depression.org.nz. 
um, the lowdown. There's lots of different um, evidence-based, mm, mm. you know, um, valid websites to to access. The New Zealand Psychological Society um, also has some very good resources around maintaining hoara well-being, how to look after your own mental health during COVID nineteen, mm. but also just life yeah. in general. Yeah. Because I guess that's the thing, you know, if you get it right for during COVID-19, <laughs> it's going to carry you into the future, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, whenever this phase kind of yeah. runs out. Yeah. 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 Um, you know, there's lots of wonderful well-being tips. There's, mm. there's a few here that I've, that I've um, you know, have accessed through the Mental Health Foundation, for example, um, finding ways to connect take notice so it's that five mm. you know your five winning ways to well-being find ways to move your tinana find ways to give um keep learning connecting mm. with the fenua you know it's important nature is is integral there start your own your own routine or stick to your own routine or start a new one is one of the things they've um recommended identify and explore different ways to relax and this is one actually that I have um, told more people over time is limit the amount of news bites or social media mm. that you follow. And only and I quite like the fact that the Mental Health Foundation has cited this. Only trust official COVID nineteen you know sites. Mm. But that I think goes across any kind of um, information. Be careful mm. of um, accessing things in the web that you and I know have not come from yeah. bonafide institutions of scientific or mm. academic excellence or have been vetted by experts yeah. in the field. The because might be mis- that fake news. Correct. Because <laughs> misinformation, as yeah. you know, is so unhelpful. Yeah. We see that in so many different guises. We're not going to talk about it in terms of politics, but, you know, it is quite, yeah. um, uh, you know, it's pervasive. And so just limit especially if people are highly distressed or wound up because of what's happening at the moment, you can choose to own, mm. you know, maybe get information from others. You don't have to be transfixed all the time about, you know, how many cases today. And I think that was more apparent, mm. as we know, during the first two lockdowns. Yeah. Yeah. But more recently mm. with the new cases that have come out of um, managed isolation um, quarantine facilities mm. you know yeah. it is important I think that we have control we actually do have control mm. over that no one tells us to listen to all of the no the briefings <laughs> every day yeah there's a difference between being informed but then if it's no longer you know being a useful thing for mm. you and it's actually triggering or making you more anxious distressed all of the above yeah you stop choose to stop yeah Yeah. and I guess that goes for all social media doesn't it about anything yeah absolutely (laughs) yeah yeah I'm glad you mentioned that absolutely so Mm. you can um you know control the amount of interaction Mm. that you you Mm. wish to partake in yeah especially with with social media there's this propensity to be constantly on all the time you and I know that's not good for not just our physical health but our mental Mm. health you don't get a chance or, or a break. Yeah. You, you know. need to turn your notifications off. <laughs> yes. 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 <laughs> <laughs> or at least after a certain time of the day. Yeah. 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 Mm. Um, so looking at 2021, 
do we have high expectations of what's going to happen this year, do you think? I hope we will just have some expectations. <laughs> some <laughs> That's expectations, a loaded question. Um, I, to each their own, but I think, mm. um, you know, uh, manage your own expectations. Mm. Maybe titrate that if it's, hey, I'm not going to judge. If it's working for you and it's helping you to flourish, thrive, mm. and achieve, more power to you. But yep. equally, if it's actually doing you a disservice and it's causing you strife physically, emotionally, you're starting to get sick, then that's a really good signal that perhaps recalibrating your own intentions or expectations mm. is a good indicator that some some things have to change. Yeah. 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 And so we've talked about working in an ICU and I mean in healthcare in general about how stressful it can be and yeah. what a busy day we have. What can we do, I guess, as we leave at the end of the day to kind of divide our lives and get back to normal mm. um, before we head in the door at home and you know be, other <laughs> be the mother the father the That's husband right. the wife the yes. whatever yes um you asking my how i do it personally well I, both, both okay. <laughs> um, for me personally at the moment i take off my id badge is my signal mm. it's a very symbolic yeah. time um yep. I often also take it off when I don't have to have it on, mm. so it's a good signal for me. That's a very behavioral way. Um, I think it's easy for you folks, though, because you get to wear uniforms. <laughs> yeah, I we want get to change. Yeah, yeah, I think, you know, the practical yeah. ones. So for our nursing colleagues that are um, listening to your mm. podcast today, um, I would say use that as a really good um, symbol of now you're transitioning out of your nursing remit or hat, mm. whatever role you may have had at that particular day or shift. And, you know, how do you impact it quite literally? Mm. What do you need to do to cross over, perhaps, yeah. to be those other wonderful, important roles that mm. you fulfill? Because I think one of the things we forget, this is just a small facet of who we are yeah. as people. And, um, you know, when we talk about workplace hora, it's very important that we have a life outside of this place, especially given the very demanding environments and context we find ourselves in. Mm. So, yeah, for me, you know, um, being able to remove that yeah. persona or that hat is a good way of doing it. Mine is just my idea, my lanyard for you folks. <laughs> it's your uniform, yeah. so that's handy. Um Having a bit of a ritual, you know, maybe when you mm. get into the car, you whether it's just listening to music or whatever, it's anything to kind of get set yourself, your mind and body that, hey, I'm going home now, I'm get, bracing myself for the commute. Mm. I know people that use public transport might just plug in, they might listen to a podcast. Yeah, like, perfect like opportunity. This. That's Thank great. you, Iris. You're welcome. <laughs> a podcast or reading a book. Yeah. If not driving, not obviously. driving. Yes. <laughs> Thank you for catching me for that. But yeah, just things like that, you yeah. know, and um, trying to leave the day behind. So for all of us, maybe oh, there are things I haven't done or I wish to do. I often do like a little list. Yeah. I leave that list here. Mm-hmm. You know, so you, you definitely don't take it with you. No, unless yeah. you're on call, there are diff- there are exceptions. Yeah. But otherwise, you do. Turning off your duty phone is a very mm. good place to start. Um, I'm very proud to say my new intention for this year, um, I've just come back from leave, is that I did not turn on my work phone and I have not loaded work emails onto my personal phone. Well done. So, yeah, yeah so things like that, they're yeah. well and truly in your control because you're, if you're off duty, you're off duty. Yeah. So boundaries, 
Yeah, not checking your emails before no, beers. No, I didn't. Yeah. And yes, might be might have been paying for it at some point, but also I didn't have <laughs> yeah. to worry about it while no. I was meant to be hanging out with my family and loved yeah. ones, restoring, recalibrating. You know, because we owe it to ourselves to be, you know, the best people we can be. I know it sounds cheesy, but it's true though. If mm. we want to be of service to others, especially in health, um, we have to first and foremost prioritize our self care, mm. maintain our own resilience because we don't know what's coming mm. and that could often change. But at least we have the capacity to cope and manage when things do come mm. that challenge us on a day to day. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I, life outside of work is another also mm. really wonderful way to to leave the soul behind. Mm. Mm. And hopefully that way we bring our best selves to work too when we do come to work. That's right. Yeah. Because you, you you're focused, you know what you're you know what your mandate is, I guess, and you, you are you're you're motivated because you've you've had a break or at least you know a rest from the busy space. Mm. Yeah, mm. so important. Mm. Mm. So, was there anything else that you were going to bring to our attention? Mm. I th- I suppose um, there are lots of really handy resources. Uh, always. You know, there's always hope is one of the things I would like to say. Um, It's important for people to reach out. You know, there's no such thing as no one's there to listen, um, whether it's, um, you know, our helplines that are available 24 hours a day. But the last comment I would like to make probably is the chances are we're not the only ones experiencing some of whatever it is that we're Mm. experiencing in the current state. And just... Being open and vulnerable to opening up just to a handful of people that we trust is often a really good way to even, you know, um, get rid of uh, whatever stress or burden that mm. that person or, you know, anyone might be experiencing. Mm. Oh, no, that's so important and so nice to be able to say to people that sometimes it can be as simple as that mm-hmm. um, and that often that's the first step. That's right. Yeah. 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 Just being honest that maybe not always okay, and that's that's part of the yeah. human condition. You know, we all suffer at, at different points in our lives, mm-hmm. but it is a you know, um, yeah, it's our common humanity that binds us, and hopefully that will continue to help us flourish and, and cope with mm-hmm. crises and you know pandemics. Just as one example, it could be anything else really that we're encountering in our own lives. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, look, thank you for your time today. And um, it's probably a good opportunity to close um, on a Friday afternoon. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and we can prepare ourselves for the weekend ahead. Yeah. So, yeah. So thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me, Rachel. I appreciate it. Oh, that's been great. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed that. The conversation with Iris really made me stop and think about how we can be of service to others how we must be grateful and how we should prioritise looking after ourselves in order to look after others. I think one of the things that really stood out for me was the message that being okay with what I've done today is good enough some days. It's hard for us you clinicians who I think by nature are fairly high achieving and always wanting to deliver 100% or more. Certainly something to consider next time is being particularly critical of oneself perhaps. 
give yourself a break. The second comment that stuck with me was how my nurse made me feel heard. Again, something to remember next time we care for our patients. How can we make this person in front of us be heard? Thanks for listening. I'm so glad you could join us. If this is your first time listening, then welcome and thanks for joining us. And if you are a returning listener, then thank you for coming back. I hope you are enjoying the experience. If you have any feedback or suggestions, I would love to hear them. What did you enjoy? Who would you like to hear from? And would you like to make a guest appearance? Please contact me by email. And until next time, I hope this proves to be critical to your success.